and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Nita Farahani is one of those people that I get the pleasure of interviewing that when I read her bio or hear her speak or read her stuff, I'm thinking to myself, how the heck am I going to interview this person who is 10 times smarter and more accomplished than I am? And that is the truth. I'm not just lowering my intelligence for the sake of this conversation or this introduction. It is how I feel. And I get nervous and anxious talking to people like Nita. And so I'm going to give you Nita's bio. And then I want you to listen to this conversation. And more than the bio and more than the information and knowledge and wisdom that she shares, what I appreciate about Nita is how down to earth she was. And I've seen her in person on stage. As I said, I've watched TED Talks. I've read her book. And I think if you're sitting back and receiving that content when she's in performance mode, it is awe-inspiring. She is someone who's brilliant. 
and shares her brilliance in an efficient, profound way, which I really struggle with. And once again, this conversation is about as authentic, genuine, real, vulnerable as any that I've had. And so her capacity to share her knowledge and wisdom in a setting where she's expected to do so at a level that is just extremely, extremely high uh, as a world-class thinker is incredible. And then her ability to bring it down to earth and share it with people like myself is really what I am truly grateful for. So here's her bio. She's a pioneering futurist and authority on laws, ethics, and technology. She's a distinguished professor of law and philosophy and founding director of Duke University Science and Society Initiative. In her book, The Battle of Your Brain, uh, sorry, The Battle for Your Brain, which we discuss quite frequently in this conversation, she champions cognitive liberty which is really at the core of today's conversation. And a lot of Nita's work is around this framework, this ideology, this thought, this concept of cognitive liberty uh, and how that shakes up and shows itself in a digital era, a digital environment that we are all living in. Her insights shared from TED stages to global policy forums guide responsible advancements in science and technology. Her background educationally, she received uh, an AB in genetics, cell and development biology from Dartmouth, an ALM in biology from Harvard, a JD and MA from Duke University, as well as a PhD in philosophy. So a lot of letters next to her name. As I said, it's where some of that intimidation uh, lives for me when I'm interviewing her. And as I said in the beginning, you're going to love this conversation. We go into parenting, we go into philosophy, we go into ethics. We really run a broad range of subjects. And I love people with range. So I know you're going to love Nita too. So here is Nita Farahani. Nita, thank you for coming on the podcast. I had a first question ready for you, but I'm going to audible and I'm going to change into this world of parenting because I felt as though we were getting into that uh, when we were talking before we hit record. And to me, it's the thing I probably think the most about in my world today. It just consumes me. Last night, I had a hard time going to sleep because I was thinking about my kid's soccer team and uh, that I put together and, and all the elements of that. So it just dominates a lot of my uh, mental energy. I'm curious for you, how ha- how did having kids change how you see things um, philosophically, uh, ethically, legally? Uh, and then I know there's more to your story as well when it comes to having children. Um, but let's start there. And I think that's just a an open space and canvas for you to play with. So, I mean, it, it's changes everything for people who are parents. I think you, you go from, you know, maybe a hard charging career or, you know, looking for, uh, you know, what's the next thing I'm going to do, or what's the next book I'm going to write, or what's the next, you know, trip that I'm going on for some career opportunity to everything really first and foremost, being about your kids. And for me, that was the, you know, kind of major shift in priorities where the most, I think kind of precious moments that I have are the moments with my kids. Um, but it also left me in this world of feeling torn all the time in a way that I hadn't been previously. So, you know, wanting to always be there for my children and to do what's best for them and to constantly be thinking about, 
you know, what is the world that we're leaving to them? And, you know, how can I help improve the world that I'm leaving to them versus how do I just spend that time with them? Right. I mean, you know, there's this part of you that just wants to say like, okay, I only have a few years before they're going to start to do their own things and have their own friends. And, you know, how do I spend as much time as possible with them during that time versus, you know, go off and advocate for a set of rights that I think will be really impactful for them or do the research, which I think is necessary to help them figure out how to navigate whether or not to use screens. And if they're going to use screens, what kinds of content they should be using on their screens or how those screens are changing or manipulating their brains. And, you know, so everything I think gets filtered through a lens for me of kids, um, whether that's the work, whether to take on the work, uh, the importance of taking on the work, how the work relates to their lives and their flourishing over time. So. You mentioned a hard charging career and I've had this, idea recently about being a world-class dad mm -hmm. that I don't think I had, uh, certainly before I had kids, I was like, Oh, I'd love to be a dad. I, I look forward to it. But even on this podcast, I've sort of questioned how am I spending my time? Um, mm -hmm. and there's like a macro and a micro element to this. And I hear that in what you're talking about, which is you're working on big stuff mm -hmm. that could potentially impact how our world interacts and like, Whoa, I think about people that changed this world and they weren't always world-class parents, at least from my perspective. I don't know what their kids would say, but sometimes people that are making a huge dent or huge impact on the world at a macro level struggle on the micro level. And so for you, you mentioned, I don't want to say balance, but you mentioned trying to be present for both. Is there anything that you've done over the last eight years that's helped you be where you need to be when you need to be there? I think the biggest is to uh, have some grace for myself, which is, you know, to recognize I can't actually do everything. And sometimes that means saying no to the career opportunity. And sometimes it means not showing up for, you know, the first time my little one plays soccer shots and is, you know, trying out some new activity. Uh, and, you know, figuring out what I think the moments are that are just non-negotiables. So, you know, the school performance, the recital, the, you know, pieces like that, but also recognizing those aren't it for my kids, right? Some some of it is showing up to be the parent to, um, you know, monitors recess on Fridays, which is, you know, an hour, but it's the kind of thing where it's not just the big events, but a lot of the small events repeatedly over time. And for me, especially I have, I have girls and, wanting them to see that it's okay to have a career and it's okay to have, you know, times that are um, about developing that career and that it's not just okay, but um, I love what I do and I want them to know that I love what I do. So it's, it's a role model way of showing up too. So I think some of it for me in thinking about parenting is it's not necessarily being at every dinner with the kids sometimes the best thing and the best gift that I can give them in the long run is showing them that I love my career and I love being with them and that there are hard choices. And sometimes I have to make those hard choices, but I say no a lot to external opportunities, especially while my kids are young, because part of my mentality is many of those opportunities will continue in different forms to come over time. But the time I have with my kids while they're young is really limited and the biggest impact I'm going to have is, you know, ensuring that they have secure attachments in the younger years with their parents. 
I'm also fortunate to have an extraordinary partner who um, has flexibility to be able to, you know, say, yes, go travel to that meeting. And that meeting sounds, you know, important, or I trust your judgment about which things you're going to show up for and which things you're going to say no for. And, you know, that I will uh, help, you know, pick things up on this end. And, you know, an amazing team of nannies and au pairs and babysitters and others who are part of our extended family. So, you know, I think it's never easy. And for any working parent who has children, we feel that struggle all the time of how do you, how do you show up for your kids in ways that are meaningful and impactful? And how do you have the impact you want to have on the world, which also could change the world that you're creating for them, not just at the micro level, but at the macro level as well. So it's, it's a struggle. It's a, a struggle where, you know, I oftentimes feel like I'm never um, fully able to give to any one part of my life, but I am constantly evaluating and reevaluating it to try to find the right balance. We'll go into your background. I mean, there's such range in, in your background, and I'm curious about that range, but I want to stay here for a minute. Uh, you've got this line in your book where you mentioned the way you deal with the uncertainty of life is by arming yourself with knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so much of your book is on personal choice and the ability to arm yourself with knowledge is knowledge. And you call it cognitive liberty, which we're going to talk a lot about in today's conversation, but staying on the parenting front for me, I thought I knew a thing or two. And then these kids came and I was like, Whoa, like I am woefully uh, incompetent when it comes to this job. And what I thought it was going to be is, is very different than what I am noticing it to be. What wisdom are you pulling out from parenting that might not have to do with information you could find in a book or in research when it comes to parenting? Is there anything you've learned from a wisdom standpoint that might be different than the knowledge that we might uncover when it comes to researching parenting? Yeah. I mean, when I say that I I arm myself with knowledge, that doesn't necessarily come just from books. And a lot of parenting wisdom isn't in books. It is both, you know, our own personal experience, but the experience of many others. And, you know, finding other parents who've navigated similar circumstances, whether it's, you know, today my preschooler was, you know, hysterically crying at, at drop off and, you know, parents before me saying like, this is, this, this happens and it's a normal transition. And when, you know, you drop them off, they generally settle down and, you know, within a few weeks, they're kind of accustomed to a new schedule. And here's what it looks like if you decide to pull your child out of preschool and wait another year. And, you know, that's not the kind of thing that you're going to find easily by, you know, going to chat GPT or by going to, you know, the like psychologist best book on parenting of toddlers or or preschoolers. So a lot of it's, I think, reaching out to other parents. And I think, you know, to your point of there's a lot we didn't know. I remember the first night we brought our oldest home from the hospital and my husband and I looked at each other and we we're like, what, like some these people just let us walk out of the hospital with a human being. Like, we don't know what we're doing. Like, we now have this like little human whose life is in our hands. Like, what do we know, right? You need a lot of humility. A parent who thinks that they know anything is quickly schooled by their children that they know nothing at all. And just when you think you have it figured out, if you have one child 
the second one comes along and, you know, you're doing all the same things and they're a totally different kid. And so you think it's parenting that is, you know, leading to whatever behaviors or improvements or, you know, you have the perfect first child who, you know, follows all the rules and the second one breaks all of them. You realize it's it's not really all about you either, right? There's a lot of things that are outside of your control. And I think the probably biggest thing that I've had to grapple with as a parent is being less of a control freak and to just, you know, the the best advice is you have to let go. Like you cannot control everything and life happens and it's about resilience and, and teaching your children that resilience to be able to adapt to change. Um, so that's probably, you know, it's, it's the experience of other parents, but it's the recognition of letting go. I was probably a much greater control freak before I had kids than I have since. I was even a really serious minimalist uh, in terms of modern minimalism in my home and um, and in my life. And once you have kids, you know, modern minimalism is, you know, kids are maximalist. It's very difficult to like maintain your perfectly ordered home and your perfectly ordered bookshelves. Like you, you just learn to let go. Someone I admire and respect said to me once, I don't aspire for my kids to be happy all the time. I aspire for them to have the tools to deal with when they're not. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of that quote as I'm hearing you talk. I'm also thinking about your background and uh, your background, as I said, has this range. So you've got the science side to you. You've got the legal side. There's this philosophical, there's an ethical side. Um what I know your dad was a physician was, was dad telling you like, Hey, just go be a doctor, Nita. Like that's what, what you should do. Um, and like, that's the path. Was there something else that led you to get, you know, a PhD, a JD, <laughs> a master's like in these different worlds. I think people probably say this to you all the time. Like it, it's rare that I have someone on my podcast who has, all of these different elements inside of them from an educational academic standpoint, what was it in your childhood or maybe beyond that, that led you to explore beyond one lane? So, you know, I I had a really interesting upbringing. So I had parents who I'd say valued education, you know, incredibly highly, like just really emphasized that education was the thing that they placed the greatest importance on which is interesting if you look at my parents' own background. So my dad um, grew up in a small town called Arak, A-R-A-K, in in southern Iran. And the small village that he grew up in didn't have a school past fourth grade. Uh, And, you know, his own parents were illiterate. And he, from the time that he was as young as he can possibly remember, just had this like singular perspective that he was going to become a physician. And by the time he got to fifth grade, he started literally walking six kilometers each day to the next town over to go to school. Um, And, you know, every parent says like, I walked uphill both ways in the snow to school. My dad really actually did. (laughs) When I went and visited Iran and, and saw the route, I was shocked that the stories were actually true. By sixth grade, they moved to, um, the so Iraq is actually where they moved to. Before then, they were living in a small village called called Hosseinia Farahan. The bigger city was Iraq. They moved there in sixth grade for my dad to continue his education, and he went on to, 
you know, become the strongest high school student in all of Iran in their placement exam and went to medical school and just had this extraordinary drive and passion for medicine and had a really amazing career as a cardiologist. He retired a few years ago. You know, he um, he cultivated that same passion and interest in us in science and in medicine. And so I grew up really interested in the how and the why of how things worked. You know, when I was in kindergarten, I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And so I was really committed to that. But by the time um, I got to high school, I had this strong policy streak in me. And I think that also came from my parents who spent a lot of time growing up talking with us about the politics in Iran and in other parts of the world. And, you know, we watched as a lot of political strife unfolded over time happening to our family in Iran because my parents came to the U.S., but all of their extended family, my 17 first cousin, all of my aunts and uncles live in Iran still. And, you know, we we learned a lot about that, about the government, about oppression of people, about, um, you know, kind of the differences of how, how governments and freedoms affect how people uh, think and live. And that, together with policy debate in high school, opened up my worldview. So I was really passionate then about policy, and I was really passionate about science, uh, my senior year, we had these senior superlatives. And I said, in mine, you had to leave your last will and testament. What is it that you were going to go do in your life? And I said, I was going to be a doctor and a lawyer. <laughs> and that sort of happened, right? I didn't end up going to medical school. By the time I went on my med school interviews, I um, was super grossed out by the corpses and, and just knew that like the practice of medicine wasn't right for me. Um, and But I was really driven by these bigger questions about how science and technology impacted the world and how we ought to think about that. And that ultimately led me to get a JD and a PhD. Um, along the way, I got, you know, master's in science and biology and, and neuroscience because I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure out, like, was I going to go get a PhD in science? Was I going to go to law school? Was I going to go get, you know, med school? Which, which of these degrees was I going to go down? And I finally found my way when I was doing the master's degree into this combination of philosophy of science and law. Were your parents like Nita just focus on one or were they? Like, well, we have just... this joke, which was my my dad, because he was so passionate about education early on, said to us, like, I will, you know, support you as long as you're in school. I have two older sisters. And with me, they were like, All right, you're done. Like you're cut off, cut right? Off. I mean, some point there's an abuse of the system and you have abused and found the loophole of the system. Like, get out, <laughs> you know. But um, no, I mean they were they were supportive, you know, they they um to their credit. They had no idea what I was doing, um, you know, from from their perspective, there was like going to law school, there was going to med school, there was, um, you know, doing a kind of professional degree. But what I was doing looked odd and, and um, you know, perhaps uh, misguided in, in, in the end. But they, you know, they trusted me, they supported me to go figure it out. And um, I think are are surprised and and happy to see that I've been able to use all of those different degrees and to make a career that really focuses at the intersection of all of them. You talk about your dad in the book and where maybe you see things a little differently, which I think is very healthy, but the dedication of the book is to mom and dad for always believing in me, even when they think 
and I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> is that something if if your daughters, you know, write a book 30 years from now, is that something you would hope they echo? Is that a philosophical simil- similarity that, hey, I want to believe in them, even if I have no idea what they're talking about? Yes. Um, I hope I'll have an idea of what they're talking about. But but yeah, I mean, I that kind of faith in your children, I think, is really freeing. You know, knowing that I had my parents' support no matter what path I chose in life, um, even if it didn't seem to make any sense, even if what I was talking about seemed to be fanciful or, um, you know, not connect up with any of the things that they were really focused on or cared about, just the faith that, you know, you give your kids that kind of trust and leeway to go find their own path in life and that you'll support them no matter what. Yeah, I hope I hope my kids feel that. I hope my kids feel like, they have the freedom to figure out who they are and what they're passionate about and know that no matter what I'm there, I'm there behind them. That's, you know, my partner and I are there uh, in support of them. You mentioned this intersection that you live at and sort of bringing science, but also bringing theory or philosophy and thinking about things that way. I'm curious and I'm wondering about our education systems and based on your journey. And now you do a lot of talking about the brain, uh, a lot, and clearly you're well-versed on the brain. I mean, I've seen you on stage talking about the brain. Uh, like it's impressive, the knowledge. I don't think any medical doctor is going to sit here and really say, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I would find that hard to believe. I'm thinking just from back that macro level about our education system and picking a major and doing a deep dive and and narrowing your scope, so to speak. I I heard this concept of exploring versus exploiting. And that when we're children, we explore and you know this, you've got kids, I've got kids, they just start exploring the world and they're curious, like uber, uber curious. And as we get older, we're taught to sort of become more exploitive. So we have a job, we know accounting, we know medicine, we know construction, and then we exploit the knowledge. Your background, I'm curious, like if you could wave a magic wand tomorrow and impact our education system without thinking about the policies and, and all the other stuff that comes with it. But what, what might we benefit from, from having more range rather than maybe focusing on one thing and assuming that it's not going to cost an arm and a leg and it's not going to take as long as maybe it took you. If you could just infuse some range into our education system, what would that look like? I think it depends on which level of education you mean. Um, so if you mean kind of primary schools from, you know, preschool through high school, I think I'd have a different answer than if we were to look at it in the higher ed setting. Um, and, you know, I think we, uh, I think sometimes, and I, I can say this as an educator, we become so comfortable in our lesson plans that we forget what it is that we're trying to teach. Like we think we're trying to impart knowledge, but Actually, it's trying to teach critical thinking skills, trying to teach resilience and emotional intelligence and to equip people to be able to think freely. Uh, And that, I think, has gotten lost in different stages of our educational system where, you know, we're teaching to a test, we're teaching to particular knowledge, we're teaching you know, you have to learn your multiplication tables, or you have to learn your uh, vocabulary words, or you have to learn, um, you know, this particular substantive area of of writing or this particular, um, you know, subject in science, where ultimately, like, what we're really trying to teach is people thinking freely to be able to navigate the world. 
And I think, especially in this moment of generative AI, there's going to have to be a reawakening of the educational system to like focus back in on those critical skills and to say like, how do you teach skills that enable human flourishing? How do you teach people to have the mental agility that they need to think through a new problem or encounter a rapidly changing world? How do you teach resilience to adapt to change? How do you teach emotional intelligence so that people can develop the kind of empathy and understanding of their relationship to others and their relationship to society? And how do you teach interoception, which we spend so little time trying to cultivate, which is an ability to look inward and to have a better sense of what you're thinking and feeling and to identify with that, right? Have a better sense of our own body and our own sense of um, how we think and feel. So it's not a particular substantive area. I think it's a way of thinking. You know, we, we've chosen a school that we've enrolled our kids in that's more project-based learning, where the goal really is to teach kids how to think that. Um, you know, are they succeeding? Much of the time, right? But is it perfect? There is no educational system that's perfect. But I, I believe just neurologically and developmentally, at least at that age, giving children uh, a focus on education that's more around those kinds of skills um, helps them rather than trying to teach to a particular subject or a particular amount of content. All right. So let's dive into a lot of what your book is about and, and the research. And um, cognitive liberty is this theme. It ends the book. Uh, you end the book with cognitive liberty. You really begin it. Uh, there was actually a definition, I think it was on like page 90 of the book. I don't remember pages exactly, but <laughs> so it's like, th it's a through line throughout. And um, it really is sort of the core belief that I believe you hold. And when I watched you at the Aspen Ideas Festival, it was actually a debate that was riveting. <laughs> and it was incredible around should humans be allowed to erase their memory, which you gently, like, I think changed the question in a very, that those high school uh, debate classes, I think paid off for you. Um, <laughs> but, but cognitive liberty. So what is it and, and why does it matter? So cognitive liberty is the right to self-determination over our brains and mental experiences. And, and by that, I mean, it's both a right to um, understand, access, and change our own brains and mental experiences, but it's also a right from interference with them. So from interference with what you're thinking and feeling, um, it's a right to mental privacy. It's a right to freedom of thought, to safeguard people against interference with um, you know, literally what they're thinking, manipulating what they're thinking or punishing them for what they're thinking. Um, and you're right. It is a through line of my book, The Battle for Your Brain. I, I very much used um, the kind of coming age of widespread neurotechnology as a lens to help us understand and construct this kind of critical right, I think, that we need to flourish in the digital age, which is this right to think freely. Um, and I see it under threat, not just from this world that's coming of brain transparency, where the headphones that you and I are wearing right now will be you know, embedded with sensors that enable us to detect our own brain activity, which has a lot of hope and potential, but suddenly opens up what we're thinking and feeling you know, with much greater transparency to corporations and governments and others who are already 
in more limited ways because the technology hasn't gone wide scale yet, using that as ways to interfere with how we're thinking and feeling. And, you know, it's of course a much bigger phenomena than that. It's not just about brain sensors. It's about, you know, generative AI. It's about banning books and classrooms. It's about, you know, trying to brainwash people in concentration camps about, you know, a particular political ideology and the way that they ought to be thinking. It is eroding this kind of core ability for people to cultivate a sense of self and a sense of identity free from interference by other people. And I'm not naive enough to believe that, you know, we exist independently from all of the other ways that we interact with other people in society or with technology, right? We are interdependent beings. Um, and so all of that has an impact on how we think and feel, but there are ways of doing that that respect our cognitive liberty and there are ways of doing that that override or try to instrument us or prevent us from having that kind of freedom of thinking. Um, and it makes sense, of course, that you would want to talk first kind of about my kids and then this, because I, I see it as being, you know, kind of a crucial legacy, I hope, for my children, for future generations to safeguard what I think is this last fortress, this last stand of privacy, this kind of most critical feature of um, the ability of human beings to navigate a world that's rapidly changing is to have a right to cognitive liberty. I want to go into like the psychology of this because like I had somebody recently say, I don't mind that they're reading my inbox or they're they're noticing and then get targeting ads to stuff that I actually want. Right. Um, and we have wearable technologies and you you confront that in the book and talk about some challenges that exist in that world. Before we go into the idea of liberty, which I think that that makes sense to me, I'm actually curious of what's underneath all this. Like, why is it that maybe we are more open to people, to letting a world into our universe and maybe we should be. Um, and I know should be is different for different people. And your point is everyone should have the choice to safeguard themselves. But what do you think it is about humans that's allowing them or or, or whether it's, you know, social media or uh, wearable technology or even like Gmail ads, targeted ads? What do you think it is about us in 2023 where some people are just okay with that and accepting of that rather than maybe pushing back on the potential downfalls that might come with that? So I, I, it's a great question. And, and a lot of times what you hear is like the younger generation doesn't care about privacy or they say like, I don't have anything to hide. So why, you know, why would I care unless I have something to hide? When it comes to the brain, it's a little bit easier for me to point out to people that they do. Right. I mean, so you know, the example I, I like to give, and maybe this hits too close to home to a friend who's listening, is walking into a friend's living room and they just, you know, got a mustard yellow couch that they're very proud of, which you think is like horrifically ugly. And they say, like, what do you think of my new couch? And you say, wow, it's fantastic. It's so vibrant, right? I mean, it really just pops um, in the living room. And you were thinking like, how could any sane person choose that color? And it's so, like, it makes me think of the color of vomit or something. Um, you don't share that, right? There's a million little instances like that. Or, you know, I, I describe like every now and then I want to strangle my husband, like just every now and then, you know, I never do. And of course, like I love him and I'm never going to act on like these, you know, instant urges or I think like, oh, like I just, I cannot stand, you know, him or whoever, right? I mean, we have these 
visceral reactions to things. And then we have a different, you know, set of um, thoughts that, you know, either curb those or correct those or steer us in a different direction. And the question is how much of that inner monologue, how much of the figuring out who you are, or, you know, you dare to dare a dream about some new idea that you have, and you think it might be stupid, but you've got to turn it over in your head for a while. And eventually it starts to get legs. And you think like, yeah, I'm going to put this out there in the world. You get to choose when you put it out there in the world. Um, and that, right, the ability to have an inner monologue, a space of mental reprieve, a place where you can figure out who you are or what you like or don't like or choose what you share with people or don't share with people, I think matters so much more to people than they really realize. And when you start to put it that way, it's a little different than I don't care about what shows up in my inbox. But on that front, that's because I think people don't understand how that technology works, which is it's not just what you like showing up better in your inbox. It's actually changing what you like. Um, and the cognitive shaping that's happening from technology intentionally by the developers who understand that they're tapping into some you know, more automatic or reflexive ways that we think and subtly over time shifting what you want, what you believe, how you feel, that's a kind of overwriting of humanity that people just don't fully recognize or understand yet. And I think the more they start to understand how that technology works, the more people will opt out. And for me, it's, you know, if at the end of the day you want to be overwritten and you want to be subtly shaped and you're happier and you want to stay in the matrix and eat the steak because you think it tastes juicy and delicious, like by all means, go for it. But you should know what's happening and you should have a choice about whether or not you are part of that or if you get to choose a different system altogether. And, and in the EU, they're making a lot of moves in that direction. They're, you know, right now, um, the UK Digital Services Act gave people the right to choose whether they want to be part of one of these reinforcement learning recommender algorithms on TikTok or, you know, Meta, or if they want to choose instead to have the content that's served up to them be based on what's popular in the region rather than this kind of carefully calibrated closed loop system that sort of changes and, and reshapes how people think and feel. That debate that you listened to at um, Aspen Ideas Festival, it, you know, it was controversial, uh, the position that I was taking, which is, you know, should we erase our memories, I think was the way that they framed uh, the debate. And you're right, I subtly reframed it, which is to say, it's not about whether you should or you shouldn't, that's up to you. It's about whether you should have the right to, and if you choose to do so, should you do so? And the answer from my perspective is yes, right? If you want to erase your memories, if you want to um, opt into a recommender algorithm that serves you up a lot of content that you like and that you choose to buy more frequently, like, okay, go for it. That's your right. And your right to cognitive liberty should be what governs your choices, not somebody else making the choices about what your brain and mental experiences will look like and feel like and be shaped by without any input that you might have otherwise. And after that debate, I came up to you as so did many other people. And I know when I give a talk, which isn't that often, but when I do, I'm exhausted when it's over. And then people come up to you and flood you with their worst questions or maybe their best questions. And uh, my question was around, I was thinking as a parent. And so, you know, under 18, if my kids 
break up with their boyfriend or girlfriend or, um, you know, they get cut from a team or they don't make the play. Like, you know, should they be allowed to erase that memory? And um, so I'm curious as we're thinking about this from a choice, like we do have when my kids want to buy a game on an iPad, they have to get my approval. Uh, you know, there are things you can do on Netflix to put controls on what your kids can watch. So obviously we have driver's license and alcohol and tobacco and cannabis, all these things. So is that if you're thinking about it from a policy standpoint, would you envision that you have choice? And then if you're under 18, it would have to have some sort of parental uh, consent just like we do with all these other areas. Yeah, especially for the kinds of technologies we were talking about in that debate, right? So there are lots of ways in which you can erase or retrain memories. The one that was kind of the uh, central kind of technology that we were talking about was a, a process called decoded neurofeedback, which you know a person goes into a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, they think of whatever the traumatic memory is and the neural pathways that are um, you know, activated through that process or mapped. And then a kind of customized game is developed that implicitly reactivates those same neural pathways, but retrains it on positive associations or memories instead, like shooting hoops at a basketball or something, which then essentially overwrites that memory um, because when those pathways are kind of implicitly or automatically activated, something reminds you of, you know, whatever it is, you end up, you know, thinking of shooting basketball hoops instead of uh, the the thought. With children, you know, their brains are still developing. And part of the reason why we give a lot of parental uh, choice and oversight into something like consent to a medical procedure like that, or um, any, you know, game or other kind of device that a parent might give them is because their prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, the region of your brain that's, and, and nothing quite works exactly like this, so I'm oversimplifying, but, you know, kind of how we think about executive fun functioning and judgment, it is really not that well developed. Anybody who has a parent can tell you that like kids do not have great executive functioning or judgment, and that's part of what they're learning over time. Their brains are noisier than adults. They're the um, myelination, the kind of protective sheath that we have around uh, our axons in our brain that's developing for children. Their brains are just not in the same place as an adult's brain is in terms of judgment and decision-making. They're far more likely to make rash choices rather than reasoned and, um, and more thoughtful decisions. And one of the things that's really true of children is they don't fully understand the consequences of their choices. And even, you know, the best adult may not either, but you learn those skills over time. You develop both the brain structures and also the experience that enables you to do so. Choosing to erase a memory has consequences. And those consequences include developing the resilience to overcome a breakup and to learn from it, um, to you know incorporate and understand and kind of refine what it is that you're looking for and to learn from your mistakes and to learn from your hurt and to learn that you can survive trauma and that you can survive heartache and that you're strong enough to get through each of those things. And if you just erase each one of them, each time you confront some trauma, you have no idea if you can make it through because all you've done in the past is like push the delete button, right? So absolutely, when it comes to children, I would hope that this would be um, something that parents would be deeply engaged and involved in. At the same time, like imagine a child, you know, where 
they see their their parent die in front of their eyes who are struck by an oncoming vehicle you know is that is that something that we just simply expect like the extraordinary kind of trauma that you know can can leave a child unable to function leave them in a, a depression a fugue state that they can't emerge from do we really just think like well you got to buck up and like get through it or is it okay to use modern technology or modern interventions to enable them to get through it i think yes is the answer and so if a parent chose to you know in consultation with their child allow them to use techniques or technologies that could um, enable them to erase memories that's also okay yeah i work with relatively healthy people as a coach and these are people that tend to be quote unquote successful depending on how you measure success and the amount of stuff i'm gonna say shit the amount of shit that they've been through like many many people um I think would be staggering. Uh, and I think people don't necessarily, because we, we don't always wear those scars outwardly. And so um, I'm thinking about them as, as we're talking. And and then I'm thinking about you and, and your story and you talking about post-traumatic stress and, and what you've gone through. And there was recently an article in Time Magazine that was highly critical of therapy uh, mm-hmm. and our systems that are in place to help with mental health. And I don't think this is a zero sum game. Therapy works wonders for a lot of people. My uncle's a mentor of mine. He's a therapist. We were just talking about it on on Saturday night. He's like, well, there was also an article in the New York Times that talked about how much therapy helps people. Um, And so I I don't want to think about this as a zero sum game. And I want to think about how we can progress things because the the Time uh, article is basically making the argument that we have more therapists than ever. We have destigmatized therapy at a really high level um, and people are getting help. And yet when they are researching how well people are from a mental standpoint, they're not getting better. So Time Magazine was sort of calling um, the Association of Psychology out and sort of trying to progress things. Uh, you are in, I, I love the word intersection. Like you're at so many different intersections and you have your own story that's fueling some of this as well. Um, so you're welcome to tap into your own story in this, but I'm curious, like, what do you see the future of mental health looking like? And um, like from your seat, like where do we need to progress and improve as we think about trying to make our kids and ourselves uh, healthier from a mental standpoint? So Tom Inzel was the uh, director of the National Institute of Mental Health a number of years ago. And one of the things he called out was the fact that we knew so little about the underlying functioning of the brain when it comes to many different mental illnesses or mental health issues that we treat it symptomatically rather than actually understanding the etiology that's behind it. And I think the calling out of psychology has been, you know, in in many educational settings still, there's like the psychology department and the neuroscience department as if they're different, right? As if, um, you know, the brain is not like the physical matter that underlies a lot of these issues. And in many departments, you see a convergence of them. You have psychology and neuroscience as a unified concept. And he was calling for the National Institute of Mental Health and for the investments into mental health to really start to understand, like, like if we're talking about schizophrenia, is that a real thing? Like, of course it's a real thing in the sense of like people are suffering from a condition, but 
we group a whole bunch of symptoms together, which might actually, if you look at the brain, look very different between them. And if we understood it, we might have much better treatments. And maybe sometimes talk therapy or traditional therapy models work. And sometimes maybe they don't. For me personally, we lost our child, um, our second child, Callista. And I, you know, cannot remember pretty much anything that happened the first year after that. Um, other than I had some great friends who really showed up, uh, every day, but by the time we had our third child, Electra, um, I was still unable to sleep through the night. Every time I would close my eyes, I would re-experience a lot of the trauma of being with our daughter after she got sick in the hospital and, you know, just reliving it over and over and over again, but not reliving it like wow, this is a painful memory, like literally back there experiencing the terror, the smells, the sounds, the beeping of the machines. I mean, just all of it. And, you know, my, it it was, um, when Electra, you know, fell when she was a baby. Um, and I, called 911 and had them come like an ordinary fall that most parents would not react to that way. Um, then my husband was like, okay, listen, like, you know, you, you got to think about what you're doing to, to these kids in terms of like, they, they can't think that they're so fragile that every time that they skin their knee, that they need to show up in the emergency room. Like you got to deal with, since you use the word shit, I'll say you got to deal with your shit. Right. Um, and you know, I had tried traditional therapy at that point. It didn't really help. Um, I finally, with a really talented um, therapist, plus the use of neurotechnology for neurofeedback, not the decoded neurofeedback that we were talking about earlier, but being able to like see, okay, every time I have this thought, here's what my stress levels look like. Here's what's like physically happening to me. And here are the techniques to physically actually get through that and to know like I can survive this moment and I can get through the next moment. It was revolutionary for me. You know, I went from not being able to sleep and not being able to tolerate any of the memories to being able to live with the memories and to incorporate it into my identity and my experience. You know, that ability to embrace technology and technological advances together with, I think, a really talented therapist who could help me talk through it and work through it and also was deeply scientifically grounded. So it could show me like, here are the research papers that actually support this particular way of, you know, working through it. I needed that. Um, I needed something that was, you know, kind of deeply scientifically grounded and effective for me to trust in it enough to participate in it. There are a lot of different ways to help people through trauma. This happened to work for me. Um, I think to enable advances in mental health more generally, we need to give people the tools and the techniques to be able to see into themselves much better. Like the idea that the brain is mysterious and that we can't have access to it or that we can't see how our brain is functioning um, is I think a myth. We, we can, there is technology that is developing quickly that is, you know, enabling people to have that kind of self-access. And to me, that's a fundamental part of cognitive liberty is a right to access information about our own brains and to change them if we choose to do so. And like, literally seeing here is how this is physically affecting my brain and brain functioning and stress levels and metrics, I think is, is really helpful because then you can see, and here's how doing this thing changes it as opposed to having to trust your own sense of how you feel about what's happening in your brain versus seeing it. There's this dichotomy or polarity that's existing in everything you're talking about where 
you value cognitive liberty so strongly. And you're saying, whoa, this technology is incredible. Like, look what it did for me. And everybody should have access to this technology. And I'm thinking about at the Ideas Festival, how much talk around artificial intelligence there was. And there's this debate on, you know, does the government come in and regulate this thing? Because if we don't, and I just watched Oppenheimer, they're like, this can turn into the nuclear bomb. And, you know, we need to regulate. Um, and so there's like this polarity that I'm hearing in you where it's like, hey, this technology can help so many people and can do so much good. And if we're not careful, it's going to be used perhaps for nefarious in, in nefarious ways and in ways that might not be ethically sound. And I'm thinking about social media in that way and how we haven't had a lot of uh, choice in, to your point, what we're digesting um, on social media. And so how do you live in the polarity? How I, I understand the cognitive liberty piece. How do you like, prop up cognitive liberty. Let's use artificial intelligence perhaps as a as a good sort of separate technology that's top of mind for everybody. Like how do we make it so that artificial intelligence is available to us but not being used in a way that can really be detrimental to our society? So when I talk about neurotechnology, for example, a lot of people, you know, will say, well, okay, the downsides are so great that why wouldn't we just ban it? You hear the same thing. Let's push a hard pause on generative AI, right? And maybe we ought to just ban it because the risks are so great. The promise is also so great, right? And the promise, whether it's neurotechnology or generative AI is great. The question is, can we ever get it right as humans? Can we um, steer the technology in a way that focuses on human flourishing and flourishing of you know the the planet and the ecosystem rather than extractive of humanity and extractive of the planet. We don't have a great track record. And so, you know, on the one hand, I don't blame people who just say, let's ban it all because, you know, we we obviously can't handle it. <laughs> we obviously can't find a way forward. I am, for whatever reason, much more eternally optimistic than that. And especially think that with nascent technologies, with emerging technologies like generative AI or neurotechnology, that we could make the right choices now. We don't have to end up in the same place. Like we've seen how it went poorly. We left social media unregulated. It started potentially with a, you know, kind of idea of connecting people together. It had all these mental health risks. It started to um, be based on advertisements and reinforcement learning that would shape and change and manipulate people's behavior and could be used to, you know, shift and influence democracies and to, um, you know, cause violence and to lead people into polarization or to you know, create greater echo chambers. Seeing all of that, we can use that to make choices. And I think cognitive liberty is a frame for generative AI and for neurotechnology. It's a frame for the digital age, which is one of the biggest categories of harms that we are worried about is the impact on mental health, the impact on human um, you know, thinking, critical thinking skills, resilience, empathy. We're worried about, you know, fomenting more hate in people, making young girls, um, you know, constantly worried about their self-image and, you know, in a state of greater depression. But it turns out there are interventions when framed around cognitive liberty that could significantly change the course and the direction of these technologies. If it's both a right to access these technologies, but also a right from interference with our mental privacy and freedom of thought, 
that means that companies, for example, have a duty to identify, to warn, and to safeguard against mental manipulation by their models. And it turns out there's technologies that can actually measure the manipulation and the effect on human interaction and human users. And to then put you know, safeguards into place to change what the programming looks like. So whether it's from a design code perspective or human rights perspective or a set of incentives where in the same way that I think we've in more than, I think it's more than 23 countries, we've reached a tipping point with electric vehicles because of the huge investments in incentives that have been put into place to try to shift toward alternative energy sources. That same kind of investment in cognitive liberty by governments worldwide to say we recognize how crucial in the digital age it is to create tax incentives, public-private partnerships that move companies and their business models to align with cognitive liberty rather than cognitive diminishment would significantly move the needle. So, you know, I think the framing to say we recognize that this is of existential level importance to humanity if we want humans to emerge from the digital age, both having any capacity for freedom of thought and also any capacity to flourish, we have to realign technology with human with human values. We can do that. It just requires a kind of comprehensive plan that aligns all of the different things that we're doing with cognitive liberty. I think one of the interesting things in your book is this stuff's been going on for a while. And mm-hmm. you reference one of the cool parts of your book is you reference Avatar and how the movie Avatar and James Cameron tested out scenes to see what what would stick. I'm curious, did you think about using some of that for your book, right? Like (laughs) what resonates with someone when they're reading a book? And I say that because whenever I'm giving a talk or I'm delivering information, I'll just go to my book. Like in my book, how many times does someone say, who's this? Who's the audience? Who are you writing this for? Like like there's these constant questions. And if I could sort of A-B test some content to see what is sticky, which by the way, I do with my friends, the title of my book, hey, what resonates here? Here's 20 people, like give it to me. Did you use any technology when writing your book to try to get a sense of how you could uh, make things sticky? Or did you want it to be this blank canvas of like, hey, like, you know, this is what I'm going to present. And herein lies the dilemma, right? Like what if we feel like we have something that's really valuable to share with people, it would make sense for us to think about how we can actually get this to stick with people. But when does it get into manipulating their brain into thinking a certain way and where that line is? But let's start with the book and then you can answer that in, in more detail. So the answer is no, I didn't, um, probably to my detriment, right? I mean, it, it probably would have been stickier, would be stickier if I if I did that. It's been sticky enough. I've been happy that it's been shaping a lot of conversations. Um, you know, interestingly, the very term cognitive liberty was something that, uh, you know, probably could have been tested through like, what's something that actually helps people understand the concept better? Is it cognitive liberty? Is it thinking freely? Is it freedom of thought? Is it like, what is the terminology? Battle for your brain is a much stickier title than cognitive liberty. And if I'm thinking about this book, I'm like, this book, the title of this podcast, which by the way, I usually come up with after we've recorded Spoiler alert! You you've already seen it because you're listening. It's you know cognitive cognitive liberty. That's what we're talking about. But you went for battle for your brain. It's a yeah. little more marketable, I would imagine. Well, and I'll tell you, I didn't come up with the title. Um, so <laughs> someone, even what someone else said, hey, this is probably what people are. Well, I mean, pull. so so like the original when I sold the book, the title of the brain. I mean, the title of the book was on cognitive liberty, um, and. 
Uh, then through a bunch of conversations with my editor, um, we were like, okay, you know what? Does this fully capture the idea of what you're trying to convey, like this on cognitive liberty? And especially when you haven't fully socialized the idea yet, like the book is socializing the idea of cognitive liberty. And so for people to pick up the copy of like the book on cognitive liberty, when you haven't socialized the idea, like maybe that's the second book is on cognitive liberty, but the first book needs to be something that helps people understand like, what is it that's going on? And what you're really arguing is that this is like the final frontier and like, we're, we're here, right. We're at this battle for your brain. So it was, it was in one of those kind of brainstorming conversations that we came up with the battle for your brain. And I sort of beta tested it, which is I asked a couple of friends, right? What do you think? Do you like on cognitive liberty or do you like for the battle for your brain? And they were like, uh, duh, the battle for your brain. <laughs> That's a much better title. Yeah, I agree. It's a better title. And so in that way, it is kind of about stickiness. It's about what is it that will help people understand what it is you're trying to convey. And, you know, I like, no, I didn't do that with the book of, of you know, having uh, testing of different ideas. It really the book is so interwoven with me. It was just, you know, here, like, you know, it, I, I hope your listeners will will read it, but you'll see that there, whether it's like a sci-fi film that I am thinking of, or, you know, uh, watching cartoons with my kids or something that happened that morning with the kids or, um, you know, the deep scientific conversations and research papers that I'm drawing from, it, it really is a reflection of all of those pieces coming together. Um, what I hoped was that I was writing in a way that was accessible to people engaging um, and would help bring them to the ideas and to the conversation. Uh, but I'm not opposed to marketing. I mean, I think we've been doing that forever. It, it's There are some kinds of marketing that cross the line. And, and in the chapter of my book called Mental Manipulation, I try to show that what we're doing all day, every day is developing a theory of mind of other people and trying to persuade them at some point point, you can cross that line where what you're trying to do is bypass a person's critical thinking and engage automatic and reflexive thinking in a way that is more like trying to addict somebody to a drug than it is trying to engage them with your product in a way that's critical thinking. And, you know, where I think current technology and current marketing approaches cross the line is when what they're really trying to do is bypass you and get to reflexive actions in a way that have the sense of yourself that you identify with check out and the sense of you that is, you know, much more base level automatic and, you know, kind of addictive in many ways be on your phone or watching the next video on, you know, a, a streaming video channel. It's, it's having you check out. And that that's, I think, we we didn't have that before and modern technology is being designed to have you check out. That makes sense. Uh, the podcast is called intentional performers. And one of the things I try to get at with most of my guests is to find out what they intentionally do to, to perform. And you mentioned the Pomodoro technique that you used to write the book. And so first of all, I'd heard of it, but it was cool to hear about it or read about it in a book and you're actually using it. And when I think of checking out, like there's good checking out and bad checking out. Um, yeah. And obviously you're you're referencing two separate things, but can you talk about how you use the Pomodoro technique for the book and perhaps if you use it in other ways in your life as well and how that's been helpful for you? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I talk about how my MO before I had kids was I, I literally would like make a huge vat of hummus and I 
would like go into, you know, my yoga pants and t-shirt and live off hummus and pita bread for like a few weeks at a time when I would just like be completely immersed, like 24 seven, whatever I was writing. And once you have kids, like there is nothing like that. You can't do that. Like maybe you can be in your yoga pants all the time, but you cannot just like live off hummus and become so deeply immersed. Your attention span is like, you're lucky if you get 20 minutes uninterrupted (laughs) without the kids asking for, you know, whatever it is that they need. And so the Pomodoro method is a method that um, you set, it's a Pomodoro means like tomato and um, it was, you know, invented um, to like had a little tomato timer where you would set it for like 25 minutes and you say, okay, I'm doing whatever this task is. So this task is I'm going to do three Pomodoros of writing today. 25 minutes of focused writing, five minute break, 25 minutes of focused writing, five minute break. Um, And that means turning off your email, turning off every other notification, like literally just immersing yourself in that task for 25 minutes or whatever it is. It can be 10 minutes. It can be five minutes. I have these little cubes that I use. And so I would do these writing chunks where my kids would be like, I need this, I need this, I need this. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to turn the timer on and I am writing for the next 20 minutes. When the timer goes off, you can ask for whatever you want. Um, and it was hard to get to the place where I could actually like, cause it used to take me at least 20 minutes to even get to the place where when a page is up on my screen, I could get into the writing. I learned to be able to, you know, to your point, automatically switch context and to be able to, you know, turn off everything else in my brain, except for writing to engage quickly and spend 20 or 25 minutes writing. And then you know, the five minute mark, I'd get my kids the, you know, milk that they wanted or the, you know, turn on the whatever toy they wanted me to turn on for them. Um, and then go back to writing for 20 minutes at a time. And I'd say that's how I largely operate on almost anything I do now. It's like, okay, I'm going to do, you know, a Pomodoro of writing back to emails right now. I'm going to do a Pomodoro of whatever it is. I think about what you said earlier about modeling for your kids. And I think it's true there's this misconception that parents have to be there at all times. And what a lot of kids need is for you not to be there so that they can fall on the jungle gym and pick themselves up. And I'm thinking about introspection because you mentioned that earlier as well. My son last night read quietly, not out loud for the first time. Hmm. And my wife looked at me as he was doing it. He goes, do you guys mind if I just, you know, read on my own instead of us reading out loud? My wife is, when I said I was incompetent when we brought the baby home, um, there's no question about that. My wife was actually very competent, which I didn't know (laughs) when I married her. I wasn't like thinking about how competent she would be as a mom. I just kind of lucked out that she is like ridiculously competent and she works with kids and understands uh, where they're supposed to be from an age standpoint, et cetera. And so she was like, wow, like he's over there reading. I was like, is that good? Is that good? She's like, yes, it's awesome. Um, and so I'm thinking about the modeling that you talked about there where it's important for each of us to have space to learn on our own and to do things and to not always be needed uh, and to have some independence um, is, is really important. Um, so that was, that was cool. And I think that applies to your point beyond writing, right? It could be for anything that we're doing and we're also setting boundaries and we're saying, Hey, this is what I'm working on right now. And then I'll, I'll help you when I can. And, um, you can do the same, Hey, let's go read for 20 minutes. That's your time or go do what you need to do. Um, I want to end on this idea of identity. And I think what really drew me 
to you and your book and your work was first seeing you on a stage debate and have this presence as a speaker that was mind blowing. Um, but, but, but then you go into the bio and you see all these different letters next to your name and from these fancy universities and it's impressive. And then we started this conversation around parenting. And then before we started recording, I was like, is there anything you don't, I wouldn't find in the book or I wouldn't find out from your Ted talks. And you said, well, I really love to collect chairs. And I'm thinking (laughs) that is something I've never heard before. I have never met somebody who loves to collect chairs. Uh, And then you talk about a yellow couch in this conversation. And so you mentioned that you love architecture and you love furniture. And you mentioned that you're a minimal, you you're like, a former minimalist, right? And so there's these elements to your identity. You're Iranian. And I remember when I was in high school and there was a woman, a girl in my grade, and I said, Iran. And she goes, no, it's Iran. And it's stuck with me. And I still can't believe how many people, when I watch TV, say Iran instead of Iran. But there's all these pieces, right? Daughter of you know, Iranian immigrants, families still in Iran. Like You have writer, you have speaker, you have debater, researcher, scientist, teacher. I mean, like there's so many different identities. As you think about legacy, how important is legacy to you? And and how do you think about identity if you think about legacy at all? I mentioned I'm an eternal optimist, right? So I I pretend as if there doesn't need to be a legacy. No, I'm kidding. Um, You know, so first I would say we're all that complex, right? Um, When you peel back the layers, you know, whether your superpower is presence on stage or your superpower is, you know, being present in the moment. Every person, when you peel back the layers, I think has an interesting set of complexities. Um, and, you know, if if there's a legacy I have beyond my children, which would be enough for me to just impact, I think, uh, these wonderful little humans and to have them flourish in the world. But if there's a legacy, I hope it is to help secure for people the right to think freely in the digital era and to help them thinking clearly about what that means and securing the rights that we need to make that happen. Because I actually think that this all could go terrifically well for us or horribly badly. And right now we're more on the course of horribly badly. Like if you look at the state of the world, it's, there's a lot of promise and there is a lot of really strong signal that we are messing up on so many different domains. And to get through that, we need people to be thinking much more clearly and to be thinking much more freely than they are to like free themselves from their devices and from their echo chambers and the tiny filter bumbles that they live in and to open their eyes. And we can't do that if we stay the course that we're on. So my legacy, I hope for people is to be able to think freely in an era in which if we don't, it could go disastrously badly for us, for our children, for the human species, for the planet. Um, So if I can be part of the conversation to motivate that and to secure the right to people to be able to do so and to help them cultivate the cognitive liberty in their own lives and their own children to enable them to be part of the solution for human flourishing, I I, I will uh, be overjoyed and thrilled. Well, you're, you're doing that. So thank you for doing that. 
And I just want to compliment you because as I said, and you probably hear this, like the bio is intimidating. And I interview a lot of different people, a lot of really smart people. And what you said about complexity, it's amazing. Like I always am nervous when I'm interviewing people. I've done like 350 of these and there's all kinds of impressive people at universities that I would have never gotten into, including Duke as a, someone who grew up in Maryland and Maryland and Duke used to have something going on less so now, it, it, but it's a truth, right? Like I never would have studied at a place like that. It's, it's always intimidating to me to talk to people that are, but you, like many of my guests, the ability to bring in normal, honest, down to earth conversation is a gift to be able to be deep in the research and then to reference avatar or to reference chairs or whatever it is that you're referencing. So I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, but more so than that, I want to thank you for doing the work you're doing and speaking at at places like the Ideas Festival or on a TED Talk or, or on this podcast. And you said at the beginning, I say no to a lot of things externally. So I, I want to thank you for saying yes to, to this. Um, I know your website has a ton of information where people can obviously learn more about the battle for your brain or whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, they can follow you on social media. I think Twitter slash X or whatever Elon wants to call it tomorrow. Uh, you're on there and it's your name. Uh, so uh, where else can people find you? What else would you want them to go to? Just use this time to promote whatever it is uh, you want to promote. Well, I encourage them to uh, read the battle for your brain, defending the right to think freely in the age of neurotechnology. Um, also follow me on LinkedIn. I'm finding that's a nice platform for, um, engagement on more substantive content and kind of how people are thinking about different, uh, articles. And that's again, just my name, Nita Farahani. Uh, I'm on X as well, or whatever it'll be called tomorrow. Um, and I keep my website updated reasonably, although it's hard to do so, uh, with terrific accuracy. So I would just say, follow along on those different sites for the most current events and, please do check out um, my most recent TED Talk uh, where I think you'll get a good sense of why I think there's both extraordinary promise that we should lean into and also extraordinary risks that we should safeguard against. And if you want to watch the debate that we were referencing from Aspen Ideas Festival, you can find that online as well. You don't even have to pay an arm and a leg like I had to pay to be in attendance. Uh, and also Nita did a talk there on her own as well that I highly recommend people check out. I'm on Twitter or X or whatever it'll be called tomorrow at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn. I agree with you. That's the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Nita, thank you so much for coming on. And I really appreciate everything you're doing. Thanks so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The cognitive shaping that's happening from technology intentionally by the developers who understand that they're tapping into some you know, more automatic or reflexive ways that we think and subtly over time shifting what you want, what you believe, how you feel, that's a kind of overwriting of humanity that people just don't fully recognize or understand yet. And I think the more they start to understand how that technology works, the more people will opt out. And for me, it's, you know, at the end of the day, you want to be overwritten and you want to be subtly shaped and you're happier and you want to stay in the matrix and eat the steak because you think it tastes juicy and delicious. Like, by all means, go for it. 